you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Oh, those dulcet tones. How are you, buddy? I'm okay. I'm okay. Here it is springtime in New York City, pouring rain. <laughs> well, uh, let's turn it to, uh, well, that's fitting for Coraline, but... Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Let's let's toggle it over to some to some dreary, almost uh, Halloweeny vibes here to talk about uh, the career of Henry Selleck. Um, I would argue the preeminent American stop motion animation director of the last thirty years. He's made such films as The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, the two thousand one motion picture Monkey Bone, Coraline. Got one in production right now called Wendell and Wild. Um, our official occasion for being here is the 25th anniversary of James and the Giant Peach. But, uh, you know, it's always a good occasion to talk about what for people in our age bracket were pretty seminal children's films that watched in retrospect feel like an interesting litmus test for children's entertainment. <laughs> I think it speaks to why uh, we all have uh, mental health issues now. Sure. Looking back at some of these uh, phantasmagorias, <laughs> some of these nightmare yeah, hellscapes. My childhood was fine, but why do I feel like I had two abusive aunts that ripped up all the things I most loved? Yeah. Was it Matilda or was it this movie that really soured me on that trope? To to I say. think we got to blame Roald Dahl for that, not Henry Selleck. He's all about, Dahl is just all about the bad step. We'll, ta- we'll talk about it. We will talk about it. We're going to focus primarily on in-depth reviews of James and Monkey Bone and Coraline today. I definitely want to talk about Nightmare at the Top as it's Selleck's uh, most acclaimed and most lasting film. I think Noah and I are both uh, pretty substantial fans. But I thought um, that was a Tim Burton movie. Oh my god. Well, I, you could hear it from his voice. He was making fun of it. Tim Burton, barely on set. Wow. How about that? Right, we'll come in with the facts right at the top. Be real exclusive. That's not, no. <laughs> Henry Selleck has said that himself. Anyway, we are really psyched to have uh, Damon Bard on the show uh, coming up rather shortly. He was a sculptor on, I think, five different Henry Selleck productions, and he's going to talk about... Um, James and Coraline and some of the technological differences and why Henry Selleck continues to work in clay and also uh, what it was like to be on the ground uh, during the cancellation of the ill-fated Shadow King in 2011. There's some good some good stories coming up. As always, Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which uh, we're doing, I think, twice a week with the Playlist Podcast these days, as well as some episodes of The Fourth Wall and Deep Focus. Uh, So keep it tuned. You can find the Playlist Podcast Network feed wherever you get your shows, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. If you like what you hear, leave us a nice rating and a review. Appreciate it as always. So Noah, what do you think of either from your own presuppositions about Henry Selleck movies or after watching these ones? What's our... Got any theses for today? 
Well, surprisingly, and people who know me will not be that surprised because uh, I didn't have a childhood. Uh, I'd never seen any of these movies until this week. Oh, you had so, it. So, for some who, for whom uh, James and the Giant Peach and Monkey Bone are seminal works, uh, I could only come in as an objective observer here. I have no right, real you were emotional bumping, attach. You're bumping like Remains of the Day. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, uh, it's my the first movie that I saw. Henry Selleck comes out of California Institute of the Art in the eighties, and uh, did his undergrad at Rutgers. What's up? That's New Jersey? right. What's up, New Jersey? Um, and he does some some projects that are still. If you didn't even know, if you didn't know, is Henry Selleck are kind of indelible in American imagination. People of a certain age did, did like the stop motion inserts for MTV at the time, um, which were ubiquitous among people watching mtv he meets um tim burton at disney and i'm skipping i'm yada yadaing for sure here but um ends up directing the nightmare before christmas in 93 which disney doesn't really care about the production that much it's mostly like a favor to tim burton to I mean, Tim Burton had conceived of it as sort of like a poem and drawings, um, like a several, several years before, but didn't want a ton to do with the um, very rigorous stop motion animation project that this was going to comprise. But Henry Selleck wanted a lot to do with that because that's what he does. It's his life's passion. Um, it ends up becoming this movie that like hits all these all these quadrants, like I was, I was thinking about Nightmare Before Christmas and being so in love with it as a kid and just like the horror on my dad's face as like Grace and I are singing like Kidnap the Santa Claus in the backseat as he's like trying to go to the gym and he's like, you guys know all these songs and <laughs> we just keep going and going and going. Um, but obviously there's also like this teenage connection, this sort of like hot topic Spencer gifts like... Yo, yeah, it was Jack, a cultural Jack phenomenon. And yeah. And then I think adults could certainly appreciate the how intricate... Um, and daring the like the different like aesthetics um, colliding were and as I was rewatching it this past week um, I just found it so funny and like ironic um, like the actual plot of the movie like it's kind of a movie about like the the football star Jack Skellington in this like small town who like successfully wins the state championship every year. It's like a small town, this Halloween town that's like good at throwing a, a party for itself. And then every year they clap themselves on the back and Jack Skellington is like slowly becoming dissatisfied with this. And he decides he doesn't want to be the big fish in the small pond. Instead of throwing a party with his like 15 closest friends, he decides to become like a multinational corporation beloved by all. It's such a funny, ironic, like, stay in your lane story. It is a know your station film. (laughs) Uh, They're trying to hit us. He's very surprised. But I love that, that it's like a small town. Yeah, it's like a varsity blues kind of film. Um, I think all four of these movies have very adult kind of realizations about them. And that's why they're so confusing, I think, to think of them as an adult. Like, these are children's films? Like, especially, not to tip my hand too much about Coraline, but I would argue Coraline's just a straight horror movie. In some ways. What do you love about Nightmare before we jump into our other titles here? 
you really got to respect the Danny Elfman of it all. Oh my uh, God. Yeah. The music really kills. Uh, it slaps as the young kids say. Uh, oh yeah. And like you said, like they, they, these jingles burrow themselves into your brain where you'll just be like making shrimp scampi one night and then kidnap the Santa Claus, put him <laughs> in a bag, like whatever will pop into your head. regardless of the season uh but especially when it is because it's really all tied into the holiday branding now like i would argue that you know the jack skellington arc and the resemblance uh and the story there uh, and his songs are like part of disney halloween branding i heard this really cool episode of the Twenty Thousand hertz podcast about this the dies irae which is like this old like uh, like monk monastic melody that was like sung around tunes of death and it's like it's basically the shining theme but it's the it's the exact melody of making halloween making halloween um (laughs) so just that like attention to to detail and one of the things i want to talk about is like in all of these movies these incredibly talented craftspeople kind of can't help but show their work because all the characters end up doing some kind of incredibly tactile work. Perhaps none more stand out than making Christmas. Making Christmas, making Christmas, it's so fine. It's ours this time and won't the children be surprised? It's ours this time. Right. Yeah. Seeing them not only go through the process of, well, you see them basically wrap up making Halloween and hailing yeah. to the pumpkin song. Uh, and then their tune markedly changes as they figure out what is Christmas. Um, and then, yeah, the sort of the I mean, these movies thrive um, in the montage worlds of like literally making something, uh, whether it's Coraline getting her eyeballs sewn on at the beginning or the doll getting sewn on at the beginning. Like these movies thrive with these quick cutting shots of motion that really like create a larger space. Zooming out a little bit to Henry Selleck himself. Like I don't, I don't want to say that he's sort of single handedly keeping uh, stop motion animation alive in the States. Cause there are other productions. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's working on stop motion Pinocchio right now in Portland um, or his team is, um, and you know, Leica is in this in this neighborhood as well. The Coraline's the first Leica movie back in two thousand nine. But I mean, I think if you're an average film fan uh, trying to come up with like the names of famous stop motion animators, it's like Nick Park and Will Vinton and probably Henry Selleck before before them. He's a just a preeminent image maker in this medium. Um, and I think it's because of like this specific sensibility, like you talked about, how it can get a little harrowing thematically in a way that like burrows itself into the mind's eye of a child. But he also just has this sense of um, kind of like the grotesque and the unrestrained and this sort of like that there's a very exciting threat to all of the monsters in these movies, whether they be skeletons or monkeys or mothers or rhinos that all just seem like fun creations until they are screaming in their your face. And there's always some moment in a Henry Selleck movie where something seems like it's trying to reach through the lens and just devour you. And then you also have the thing too, where we'll hear Damon Bard's kind of theory of why stop motion continues to endure. But I found myself just getting very emotionally involved with Henry Selleck characters because they are puppets. Like in this way, it's almost like they've been made to suffer 
like almost literally to suspend the puppet in a certain emotion, which so often for James or Jack Skellington or Coraline is a kind of, they're suspended in melancholy or anguish in a way that you, the viewer, internalize and see that image and you really want them to break out of it. Like, can't you just, don't these faces just kind of burn themselves into your mind? For sure. Yeah, they're indelible. Um, And I think, too, to your point about how much the audience is aware that these these shapes are kind of being sculpted as we go. There's this really haunting moment in Nightmare Before Christmas where to escape, uh, you know, her bondage with the professor uh, in that weird tower they're in together. Sally throws herself out the window and there's this moment where she kind of looks out and looks down and is like, well, I'm already dead and like wink, wink. I'm just a, you know, a claymation puppet thing. And she just like falls off. She just plops off. And then of course, like pieces herself back together, sews her arm back on and like continues with her thing. But there is like a certain level of, you never know how much pain she's feeling, but you know that there is some reason that she didn't just immediately leap because there's mm-hmm. there's something that hurts. And I think that that's true with most of the, at least major characters of all four of these movies. It's like, Selleck isn't afraid to say like, these people experience pain. And I think that's bold in a children's space. Absolutely. Well said. Why don't we throw to the interview with sculptor Damon Bard and then come back and talk about our three main titles for today. Damon Bard is a sculptor, animator, and VFX artist who's worked on everything from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith to Ratatouille to Kung Fu Panda, and he's been a fixture on Henry Selleck's production team since uh, James and the Giant Peach back in 96, all the way through the forthcoming uh, Wendell and Wild. Damon, welcome to Be Real. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If I've got this right from looking at your IMDb credits, uh, James and the Giant Peach was your your first feature as as a sculptor. So I wondered if you could tell us where were you at that point in your life and how did you come to be involved um, as a regular on these Henry Selleck films? Technically, yes, it was my first, but it was kind of my second. I worked on a movie called um, uh, Guyver Dark Hero, I think it was the second Guyver movie. Um, live action and and I, I worked on a stop motion puppet for that um, and I was in LA uh, working with a guy um, trying to get into the makeup um, effects community and you know I was getting in it and I loved animation loved stop motion and and uh, so I knew that um, uh, they were doing James at, you know after Nightmare and so uh, I got my portfolio together and I was just really focused on going up there. And, you know, I went to the door and knocked on the door and, you know, gave them my portfolio and, uh, it actually ended up in the trash. Heavens no. Why? How? Someone later told me that, um, there was people may, may have been competitive or whatever, but. Okay. And, 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 and this person grabbed the portfolio and said, no, he's good. And. And, you know, and, and really saved me there. So that's the better question is who took it out of the trash? Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> okay, good, good. That person knows that I'm grateful, eternally grateful. Okay. How did being on that 
uh, change or evolve your feelings. But you said you already loved stop motion animation, but this is a pretty, really, really significant brush with it. Um, Henry's thing was different because on Nightmare, it was the first time that shots were long. Stop motion shots being like 10, 20, 30 seconds long. And that was unheard of. It was like, whoa, how do they keep track of what they're doing? And at that time, they only had frame grabbers that had like could capture only two frames. And, you know, but that was huge for them, you know, and they could still, you know, kind of build on that and do it. Now you can see the whole shot as you're doing it. I'm curious, since you've been on, is it five Henry Selleck films, I think, at this point? Uh, something like that, yeah. Um, I wasn't on Nightmare or Life Aquatic. Those are the only two. I've heard him say in interviews that Henry Selleck that there's a... That, I mean, he has like a the movie playing on a reel in his head. And one of the most important things about his relationship with his team is just, frankly, like question and answer sessions. And does he have um, an answer that can be effectively communicated? And I, I wonder when you're working with someone, I guess what I was curious about is, was there ever a time where you had to work um especially hard to crack something in the shared vision. Was there a character or a moment where you're like, it took us a while to get on the same page and we finally got it. Could you single anything out? Yeah, well, I mean, one right now is Other Mother 3 from uh, uh, Coraline. Because oh, yeah. her um, evolution, you know, we wanted to make each one different. And I think I had slightly different ideas than the way I wanted to see it go or thought it should go. And of course, it was always going to be what Henry wanted. But um uh, uh, I, I remember we were going in circles about her carapace costume at the end of the last part. And, you know, that was a bit of a, that was one of our, you know, circle moments of, of that. Most everything else that I seem to arrive at what he likes pretty immediately, or we evolved to it, you know, within a few takes. So what's the relationship between your sculpture and then the, the puppets that the audiences see adjusted frame by frame, are they one in the same? Does one become the other? Does it vary? Can you enlighten us on that? So when I brought in to help develop the character or, and or design, um, you know, I start with sketches, you know, maquettes, and these are going to be either uh, posed maquettes. They're not going to be the neutral, you know, sort of, you know, uh, dead dog pose uh, for, <laughs> that, that we make for the puppet, because then that's more technical. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a maquette that um, that uh, uh, you know explores a bit of the attitude, the you know pose. I don't like to do poses that are too insane unless the character really is that way. Because I like something a little more stoic. You can focus on the, the 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 generic feel of the character and have a quieter moment with it. Um, and and then from there, once Henry's happy, for instance, you know, uh, and this can cross over with other uh, productions and directors too. Um, it would it would um, go to a neutral pose where where it would be re-sculpted for for the puppet making process. Okay. And and you like if we nailed that head in that uh, pose maquette, we would either take a clay cast of that or a plastic cast if it was neutral enough, and we use exactly that because we don't want to lose anything we found in that original uh, iteration that was approved because then that becomes the key art that's the, that's the Bible and you don't, that's the foundation before anything else happens puppet wise. Interesting. So like the kind of like the photo negative of the puppet eventually that you got to hold on to. Okay. That's interesting. Thanks for engineer with the neutral, like I was saying, that dog pose and keeping the essence, but then sort of 
you know, stretching it out into a neutral pose so that you can um, engineer the puppet process from there. I saw um, on your website for Monkey Bone, they're just shelf of what looked like hundreds of different just uh, formations of the mouth for different expressions. So what are we, what are we talking about in terms of number of sculptures per character? Um, I don't remember on him. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. But, but you know, those were all hand sculpted by, by me and now they, they do it digitally. And so repl- the replacement animation process, which you're talking about, uh, that was done on Nightmare, Peach, and then Monkey Bone was all hand sculpted. No, there was no computers animating those faces. It was only on Coraline where um, we we pioneered that way that Lyca now uses and Henry uses as well with his thing, probably other places too, if they're doing it, um, where it's with the computer. And so, um, but with like Monkey Bone, we had like happy set that maybe had 30 different mouths to it, a sad set, a mad set, a, a pouty set where it was a little mouth down here. And <laughs> that's one of my favorites. And, uh, you know, they were just so cute um, and super fun to animate because they were, you know, they're, they're pretty big, you know, they're like yay big or whatever. And, you know, whereas like the spider or, or whatever, it was so, her mouth was so tiny, no bigger than your thumbnail or your pinky nail. It was so, right. so tiny. Um, uh, so, it just really depended on the character and what their role was. But with Monkey Bone, he was a main character, so that's why he had so many. Uh, and he probably had his whole sets. There might have been three or four hundred, you know. And then we made copies of those, so each animator could have what they needed for their shots. So there might have been like ten sets of the Happy, and they're all painted, or you know, etc. You know, and um, depending on how many, uh, what was needed for production. So. I've I've read you say that I mean you've you've evolved your game and your craft over the years to to stay in line with how how digital a lot of these things are becoming. But I know you're also someone who loves to just start with his hands in clay. When you talk about how demanding that used to that used to be, is there any part of you um, that uh, misses that level of um, like diligence, or, are you, or as, as an artist, are you are you fine that, that those high, high, high intensive days in a still really, really high, high, high intensive medium are gone. You mean the clay days? Yeah. Well, no, no. I just mean like you talked about specifically like having to, um, on those first three Selig films to have to hand do everything. Right. But even, but even now, I guess maybe what it's, what the conversation could be leading up to is that I don't even really do clay anymore. Mm. (laughs) Because, you know, everything has gone digital and you have these programs like ZBrush and, other things that are very sophisticated and they, you know, even though they're, they have some limitations that the real world gives you for free, you know, uh, they still can do some amazing stuff. And I've had to adapt because people don't want that. They, the clay, they want, you know, digital. So um, Mm -hmm. the last time was with Henry on, on Wendell Wild and, and uh, you know, it may not be until the next thing I work on with him because He's very insistent on working with clay, but on Wendell and Wild, I introduced the digital process to him. He was reluctant because he really wants his hand, you know, the foundations to be in the traditional ways. But, you know, I think from what I've seen, you know, we got where we needed to get to. And that was all the tool was because it's, it's a tool. It's to get us to assist in our design process, you know, and, and, and I think I, cause then I was printing out heads and, you know, bringing them over to his house and going, okay, 
you know, and, or making a clay cast of that. And, you know, it's like, but, you know, we want it to match. So we, you know, I, you know, I did it in ZBrush and, you know, et cetera. So, um, so I sort of reinvented how I did stuff for him mm-hmm. on this one and, and, you know, came up with a fun process that you guys will see more of once I can post on Instagram, you know, what I, what I did and once you see what, uh, when the show's out. We'll stay tuned for it. Does his allegiance to Clay come from a perception that the the audience will, on some level, conscious or subconscious, appreciate and connect with that more, or is it just a purely like technical thing for him? I think it's just that he trusts it. You know, it's just something he he just likes the the purity of it, and I know what he, I know exactly why. You know, sure. But sure. but but I also know what the new techniques can bring us to. So. It's kind of like you got to give up a little bit and evolve, you know, in my mind, I had to, at least for me. I, feel, I mean, I feel like one of the reasons why audiences are still drawn to stop motion animation is there, there is some expressiveness, there is some intimacy with the character. And I still felt it this week, rewatching James and Coraline and just something happening in my hippocampus or wherever that happens of like a connection with this thing. Um, as a as someone who's worked in stop motion so much, what do you what do you make of the way it works on the brain of a viewer? I liken it to doing uh, um, uh, sculpture digitally versus doing it traditionally because when you're doing it traditionally, it's you're you're in the room with it. It has a presence. When you're seeing it on film, like something photographed like a puppet, you still understand what that is. It's an object. Your mind knows the world. Uh, where we're digital, for me, it's like ah, there's this screen in the way. I can't get at what I'm. I can't get, even though I print it out and I'm like, yep, that's what it looked like. <laughs> still, there's a disconnect and, and it's like, all right, uh, I'm not real sure how to get past that. But although another thing I've done with Facebook, with Oculus, I helped develop um, Oculus Medium years ago um, where it actually brings back some of the physicality and the feel of being in the same space with what you're working on. And that's that's the thing. It's the physical relationship between things where you don't get that so much with 2d animation but when you see puppet movies yeah they can they stir your brain because they they feel a little bit more tangible stir your brain i like that i wanted to talk um about just james's face versus Coraline's because it struck me this week watching that they have they have kind of opposite faces like he barely has any eyes at all. They're just like these little snowman kind of coal chunks that are kind of just indentation in his head. And she's got these giant bay windows, obviously, that kind of invites you to connect with her. And I wonder, thinking about those two characters, did you, I know they're 20 years apart um, or 15 or whatever, but did you have to think about their expressiveness like any differently? Well, it's funny you mentioned the eyes, especially about, about James. We actually had the same size eyes on him, but um, they were not little buttons like they are in the movie. They were actually round orbs with a with a, a little hole poked in it, so then you could you know pose the eye, you know the pin or whatever. But then around the edge of that, and then they had eyelids. He just horrifying. He looked really. He looked like a zombie, and you know the skin around the eyes and foam because his face was foam. Uh, around the eyes was you know tattered looking. He just looked. It just looked eerie. And it, we had to, I remember we had an emergency meeting where uh, <laughs> we had to do something about it. And then my colleague, Martin Minier, uh, um, 
uh, who, uh, whom I met on Peach and still know, um, he came up with a design for the eyes that you see on 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 James in the end, which was he just took a, you know, because um, we wanted them more bug-like because James was kind of in their world. And so we needed everybody to kind of agree uh, design-wise so that you wouldn't look at James because it was jarring. It was like, oh God, what's wrong with him? You know, and he wasn't appealing. So it was it was a lack of appeal. I can't imagine the urgency around like red alert, red alert. The main character is horrifying to look oh, at. Oh, it was because uh, we had an animator do a test, and and it just we once the he was done, it was just like everyone kind of cringed. I oh think. boy. Well, at least then you, if everyone has the same response, then everyone's on the same page. At least. Yeah, exactly. That's why they do test audiences, right? Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Change because we can't see it anymore. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the Shadow King, which has sort of taken on this, um, I don't know, uh, like tr- mythological, tragic kind of in like industry story. I mean, for people who don't know, this is like I think a 2011 um, production that was kind of like lopped off at the knees by a change in who was running um, Disney at the time. But in the ensuing years. Uh, people on the on the crew including yourself have just kind of taken to sharing more and more of the art from it on on social channels and um i I feel like that's kind of galvanized people um what are your or galvanized fans around like a would-be like will this ever come out what is this um what are your emotions about that production today i mean that was you know like the band getting back together again i mean because again henry has had a very loyal crew since nightmare that i've been lucky to been part of and, you know, when we got, all got back into this new space in San Francisco, we were in this chocolate factory, this ex, uh, this decommissioned chocolate factory. We, we, you know, we're all the fan, it was a big reunion, but we were all getting to work on something new again. And, uh, and then it was just like, all right, we're doing our jobs. We're, you know, we're solving these problems. We're setting up the studio um, and, and everybody's getting comfortable with what they're doing. And, and we had, we even may have had two more movies after that. So we were like, whoa, there's a future. Hmm. Cause that was the other thing too, after peach, we were going to do something else at that same building there in San Francisco, but things, cha- I don't remember what happened then, but things changed and we weren't able to do the, the, the next thing. Um, but yeah, it was super sad. It was really sad because and it was so funny. I, the day, we were told I, I, I came back from, from uh, an errand I was running at lunch. I was actually trying to buy a house at the time. Oh man. And I did a home inspection quickly at lunch and I come back and no one is in the studio. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Where is everybody? And then suddenly as I'm getting deeper towards my office, throngs of unhappy looking faces were walking past me. And I'm like, what happened? What's going on? Who died? And, and then I get to where I guess they had the meeting and I'm like, what happened? They're like, you weren't here. <laughs> I was like, no, what happened? And they're like, they shut the show down. And I was like, what? So the first call I made was to my realtor and said, I can't run the house. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. How, remind me how deep into production were you guys at that point? I think we had like 10 or 15 minutes of animation. So we were just starting to get full speed ahead. Okay. You know, we had puppets made. We were we were working out prop, um, you know, uh, uh, ways to do things. We were on the edge of everything being figured out, and or just the turnover where we'd figure out stuff wasn't that long, you know, to do certain things for certain characters. And 
yeah, it was, it was, we had, we needed like another year or two and lots more money to finish. And I think, you know, but still we were at the point where it was like going to turn over, you know, where it was just like, here's a shot, here's a shot, here's a shot, here's a shot, you know. So. You're raring to go. Yeah. When you, I'm curious if you, when you see people on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, it'd be like Netflix, Netflix will give, give them the money. Let, like, let them finally do this. Does that seem like a complete impossibility or is that like a nice thought? How does that strike you? I mean, it's great, but it's not, we'd have to do everything over again because all the puppets were torn apart. That's, that seems final. It seems very final. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I was told that that happened. I didn't oh close friends of mine did and Henry. So the last thing I want to ask you is, is pretty, it's pretty random, but um, it so happens that you uh, had worked on a part of the league of extraordinary gentlemen that is kind of a, was sort of like a, is a minor recurring joke on our completely obscure, whatever film podcast where we like reviewed that movie a couple years ago. And on the, the Dante transformation at the end you worked on my, my partner Noah was just like, this is so bulbous. This is the most bulbous thing I've ever seen. And then we've basically come to describe like a lot of visual effects between the years like 2000 and 2003 as bulbous, kind of a shorthand for the really whacked out cool way that that, uh, that that movie looks. Um, what do you, what was that experience like and working on that particular insane scene? Um, I mean, I've done a lot of work with Phil Tippett, you know, uh, over the years, which has also been, you know, an honor, you know, cause he's a legend as well. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of used to being there and working there. And then on that one, uh, they, you know, I was sort of tasked with, um, you know, coming up with designs for him, excuse me. And a couple of us were doing stuff, but when I did a few things, the director, uh, Steve Norrington, he responded, he was like, Oh, you know, cause it was sort of more in lines with what he was doing. And I was sort of seeing what he was doing. I'm like, well, why don't I just sort of try and, you know, emulate what he's doing a little bit. And, and then he, I did some illustrations and some, and some maquettes. And then we, that's how we sort of started getting on that design. And they already were doing some stuff in LA. So we also had to keep that in mind, you know, uh, for the, uh, what's who was who Hyde? I guess it was Hyde. Right. And I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> like, and too many things. There's so many projects. I'm like, oh, God, I did that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh but yeah, no, I mean, that was just fun because, you know, um, th that design process, sort of a shotgun approach of just sort of, you know, uh, trying to come up with different things. Because, you know, what is he doing? This guy drinks this solution and his body transforms. And then there were even drawings. I never even showed Phil, you know, that, that then would go to the director that I think are on my site now. But, um, you know, uh, he was even a, like a dog beast at one point. I was just like, what What could it become? Sure. You know, and, and uh um, and then the one the director chose, you know, I don't think Bill wanted that one. He wanted another one because he was like, <laughs> so, um, but in the end it has to, you have to please the person in charge, you know, which is, you know, your, your director, you know, ultimately. So, sure. Well, it made an impression on us. It's, oh, that's it's completely bonkers. <laughs> Um, well, uh, Damon, it was uh, it was great to talk to you. I really appreciate uh, your time and the and the stories and the and the insights. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Thank you.
Many thanks to Damon for his time and also for giving us a glimpse of the the technical side of, of these films that Noah and I are so out of our depth in talking about, but I think do really appreciate. So thanks to Damon for his time. All right, Noah, let's talk about James and the Giant Peach from 1996, a movie that you just watched now. For the very first time. An orphan who lives with his two cruel aunts befriends anthropomorphic bugs who live inside a giant peach, and they embark on a journey to New York City. Mm-hmm. Everybody is bugging at me. <laughs> Can I say something a little mean? About me? No. You I didn't think that, like my... No, no, no. I think that the effort you put into that Harry Nilsson parody just now is about as hard as Randy Newman tried on these songs. It's, it is a crying shame that they waste five seconds of our life telling us that Randy Newman did the score for this to not have more Randy Newman in this movie. Yes, I'll give you that. It's a bit of, it feels like a bit of a phone in. For sure. Yeah. I love a peach. <laughs> From Walt Disney Pictures. Papan James. Comes the wildest. Holy shipwreck. Weirdest. You Fascinating, isn't it? Most exciting motion picture adventure of the year. He's gonna cut me in half! Let's get out of here! James and the Giant Peach. So it's based on a Roald Dahl novel, which I think you can recognize um, in some of the, the sheer cruelty of these just wicked adults kind of, not kind of, abusing little James, played by Paul Terry. Yeah, they do hit him, uh, and they talk about it, and it becomes, child abuse does, like, hold some water, even in the 20s or 30s, or whatever this is supposed to be. This one really reminds me of Matilda, too, in the live-action parts of the movie, because you have um, Miriam Margulies and Joanna Lumley as the two ants sponge and spiker just their their faces just fill just kind of subsume the frame which is really reminds me of like danny devito and trunchbull in in matilda like that's the way to you know there's a question to be said here we said some of these images are indelible like what is trauma if not like a a memory that's not a memory but rather something that like just exists in your mind forever like in some ways i think these directors in their commitment are are doing it right by giving you these images that like you can't get out of your, like, I don't remember anything about James and the giant peach, but I remember these faces being too big. Right. Yeah. And there, there's a bit of body horror too about the ants. Like they're always like putting their gross feet on things. And Joanna Lumley has, seems to have twice as many teeth as a human typically does. Um, But this is actually, I want to kind of cement this point. The scariest thing about this movie is the the rhino, which is this... Um, oh, yeah. It's a metaphor of... Tell me James, for what? <laughs> uh, for his parents dying. I think, I think it's fairly clear that they died in a car crash. Um, is the rhino the car crash? Okay. But yeah, the rhino is like his fear. The, the thing that they tell him got 
or like ate his parents and that his aunts in another disgusting turn like tell him and the rhino will come eat you too you little kid which is horrifying but the way that Selick directs it this is because that was in it that's that's the image in my mind that i remember most from this movie and it's kind of coming out of that thundercloud that um cuts off the peach at the end and the way that it just kind of keeps charging and keeps charging and like it's constantly in moving in motion but seems to get no closer doesn't gain any ground never quite pulls into full clarity i think that is really smart directing of like trauma and fear like you never get a hold of something so much that you can deal with it it's just kind of perpetually coming at you which i right. think is one of the yeah and you never really do see like the actual rhino skin or like the horn or anything. No. It's really just a shadow and a cloud moving out of the way in which or if, if a rhino were running through it, what it would look like. So I got to say, I did not remember that like 40% of this movie is in live action. No. Yeah. It's, and it, it has that very like, uh, you know, early nineties Indian in the cupboard or, uh, yeah. <laughs> What's the one with Sarah Jessica Parker, um, which she's the witch. She's the three Hocus witches. Hogus Pogus. Yeah, it has those vibes. It also kind of has Disney Channel vibes to it. And it's shot like in a pretty like square frame. If mm-hmm. you stream it, you will have stuff on the sides of it sort of cropped off, which I thought was interesting for a theatrical movie. It's on Disney Plus if people want to if people want to rewatch. Um, yeah, I think that the first 20 minutes are kind of rushed, fine. Like basically, you know, their, their house where they live at the beginning will essentially is not that dissimilar from what they end up animating in Coraline. And it's so much more impressive to do that kind of drab Victorian creepy thing with the full Henry Selleck imagination and not like. A, but they almost put the machine. people like in the set design of a claymation world. Like you're True. very clearly on a sound stage, and the house is just like actually a three foot house that is scaled to look like it's behind them, but actually it's just a model. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I mean, and that's a stylistic choice. You're never going to be like, hey, wait a minute, you know. And that's kind of what's jarring maybe about the opening of this movie. It's like, why is why does it? sort of switch between these two visual palettes while the background of it is always in this. Yeah. Huh. What do you think of Pete Pistelweight as the magic man who appears to give James these, these green bugs that uh, kind of allow him to... <laughs> I just feel like in 2021, the slightly older wise man creeping up on you in the wood uh, no, uh, it's just like not a character that has aged terribly well and like what's the allegory there like go to the woods and find the guy that's hanging out in there and he'll give you the answer yeah that's what we're advising all children to do currently listening to this podcast nope this is a guidebook for how to live your life young listeners of be real it has this like wizard of oz intensity though um of like where even like the good guys are like extremely intense and i like that the costumers like made sure to leave the possibility when designing postal weight sort of like napoleonic uh like infantry fatigues that they're they're like really ripped up like they want to leave the possibility that he is just like this delusional vagrant roaming the right. countryside just swam over the channel from uh elba 
and yeah. is like spreading the good word here. Oh my! Um, I wanted to. That's where they kept Napoleon. Read you a funny quote. Please from, do. From the 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 scene on YouTube where Pasta Wade is like, "These are crocodile tongues boiled in the skull of a dead parrot." Uh, a YouTube commenter <laughs> named Joe Cates left this comment, which I enjoy. Peter Postlewaite is the only actor, capital A, that could have played the magic man with the green things in this movie. <laughs> well said. Well said. No, I agree with you that the darkness of them is definitely surprising for the time period in they, which they were released. And then, of course, what children's films will become, which is a little bit you know, more life-affirming uh, right. than, say, this sort of dark meandering film. Um, but let's fast forward to, you know, the half, half hour mark where suddenly we're crawling through the peach and now we're clay. I think that things pick up a lot here, which I really, I think if you're watching this movie, you're watching it for like the middle 35 minutes, um, right. which feels very short while it's happening, but is, just like breathtaking. If I can jump right to the the submarine steampunk shark, that is That's so That's an incredible sequence. Cool. Maybe we could talk in each film about like the there's always a moment where you feel like the cart is maybe a the the visual cart is maybe in front of the story horse in terms oh, of sure. why something cool is appearing on screen and sometimes you're like, "You know what?" I don't need to know, baby. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And sometimes you're like, this kept the animators busy. And I think that the submarine steampunk shark is the best case scenario of like, I don't, I don't know why it's in this aesthetic. I don't know why it has like a, like a lawnmower maw, but it's probably the coolest thing in this movie. Yes, that is very true. Uh, Though I don't think all those seagulls were a small feat either. No, heavens no. I've heard the... I've heard like people who worked on Nightmare talk about um, the Christmas lights and just how taxing um, and involving Talk about that the nightmare was. before Christmas. Because <laughs> there's lights. The nightmare before the nightmare. Be- okay. But yeah, the seagulls, I think, are somewhere in the, in the realm of those Christmas lights. Um, For sure. Is the middle animated half hour enough pomp and circumstance and light bulb in the eyes so to speak uh christmas lights in the eyes to distract you from the unfortunate fact that often comes to pass in movies and properties like this where the kid protagonist is a little annoying sure um yeah i think he's just you tore up my travel map He's too little, and he doesn't seem like he wants to be there, to be honest, which Paul Terry did And he never continue. worked again, so <laughs> maybe he didn't want to be there. Yeah. Um, and we should say the bugs are uh, played by uh, Simon Callow. Who? The grasshopper, Simon Callow. Uh, the centipede is Richard Dreyfus. Right. Uh, ladybug is... The centipede. Yes. And the ladybug, of course, is... Is, is Daphne from Frasier, Jane Leaves, yeah. and she's incredible. Uh, and then it's Susan Sarandon as this French spider. And as the James and the Giant Peach VHS making of featurette said, and British comedic actor David Thewlis as the worm, which is 
not necessarily how I would describe David Thewlis 30 years later. I would say Lupin from Harry Potter and then everybody would go, oh. Yeah. Terrific actor. Um, Sure. I don't necessarily think of him for his Laugh Riot performances. Um, This is a movie with like a couple of transcendent parts. Yes. Um, In a really short movie. What is this movie? 80 minutes? 83 minutes? 79. Um, 79. <laughs> like, there's not that much other stuff that it has to make up for. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think it. I think it pushes it into like a, into a sort of positive realm for me. Like I, I think that there is something um, very freeing and childlike about uh, you know when they're mashing the peach wine. Wait, can I ask you a less serious question? Would you eat the inside of that peach, bro? Would I eat the inside of the peach? They all seem to think this is a beautiful life They're having That's a great montage. They're having a hell of a time with that peach. Are you appetized by the rind of this peach, brother? No. <laughs> the, the, the peach is a little bit icky, especially when we're in like the human world Come and he like reaches on. into it for the first time. It like comes out. It's pretty ripe at the beginning. So God only knows... <laughs> What it's like to be in that thing, like after they've been a, at sea for a few days. A transatlantic journey. You don't think Ugh, it? it must be sticky in there. <laughs> Lucy thought it was kind of funny because she's like, the construction of the inside of this peach looks more like a pumpkin. And I almost think that she's right. That the fact that they didn't have to deal with like a big ass pit was kind of uh, surprising. That is interesting. It was, it was hollow. Like a pumpkin. And then they were like eating the gunk like a pumpkin. Yeah. Well, Lucy would know from when she from lived the time she a spent living for... in a giant pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> With her bug friends after she took all those pills from that guy in the park. <laughs> right. The green, the glowing green ones. Uh, yeah, yeah. The crocodile tongues. Yeah, marinated in whatever skulls. Oh my god. When they get to New York at the end, it's not great. I like. Again, I was surprised, right? I really thought that the... I remember the rhino thing, like, taking control of my mind and everyone else's in the theater and, like, our heads exploding when I was six years old and that being the end of the movie. I did not remember 15 minutes of uh, of live-action James being like, Officer, officer, hot dog vendor, help me! Um, and then, like, the <laughs> guy who pretends to maybe a mobster in that one office episode. I think he's in Goodfellas, too. The guy who plays the cop. Well, that was the joke I was going to make. Like, what must it have been like to get that call from that casting director? Being like, character actor Mike Starr. Like, we're shooting this half-animated, <laughs> half-live-action movie where this kid's, like, in a, a fucking peach. And the peach is pulled from England to New York City. And Mike just goes... You're calling me for a cop role, aren't you? <laughs> well, I think he says, so am I Am I a mafioso or am I a cop when he gets there? Right, 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 exactly. Which one? And, Which side of the law am I on? Today? And he's a, in this one, he's a cop. Yes, he is. Um, nothing. I howled, though, at the reach this movie makes on a script level where James is kind of like, you know, he's up high on the peach and he's kind of sermonizing to New Yorkers, like hanging out of windows and chilling in the park. And he's like trying to not let his aunts who've sort of like magically driven across the ocean. Um, not, he doesn't want to be repossessed by his abusive aunts. And this NYPD officer is like the only thing standing in the way. And he kind of like makes that, uh, 
Jay-Z Alicia Keys appeal to the crowd of like, is this not the concrete jungle where dreams are made of? (laughs) Right. And you got to say it before the bugs come in deus ex machina style. New York City says no. They say stone him as if he were like Moses before he like made one of the plagues happen. I need to apologize to my mother, who apparently I upset last week on the I Passover pod, out. where I said her brisket was consistently at least soft, good, good. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. What I meant, and I, I felt like an idiot the moment I said it, Mom, but what I really meant was your brisket is consistently no qualifier, good, good. Okay. Why don't we tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then we'll rate James and the Giant Peach. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think the middle act of pure stop motion is really beautiful. I want to say that um, I was able to catch up with uh, Susie Alegria, who worked on a lot of these... uh, Henry Selleck films back in the day. And it was just like a real quick call on, on her lunch. Um, so we're not, she wanted it to be more informational anyway. She worked on the peach um, in this movie. And she talked about um, one of the really cool things I like is when the, the peach finally, you know, breaks free of its, of its tree prison in England and rolls down the hill and it rolls over that fence that then kind of puts itself helix style into the side of the peach to become like the walk ramp that they come up and down the peach with, which is such a brilliant idea. Um, it kind of goes back to my theory of like, the stop motion animators always want to find these sort of like cool and much more seamless ways of kind of showing the work that was so painstaking happening in real time in the film. And she talked about how like, yeah, it was fun, but I like just pounded stakes into a 20 foot high peach for a long time. Um, (laughs) But I love how that kind of stuff produces it in like one swift gesture that kind of tips its hat at like the work that was done. Um, That stuff is just really great. Um, But like I said from the beginning, you remember the impression of this movie, not the actual movie. Um, It's pretty captivating at some parts, but like the joy is very elusive and the pain is slathered on pretty thick. And it's also the kind of movie where, like, I'm not surprised I forgot a lot of it because the mechanics of getting from A to B to C with the musical numbers that aren't very great is pretty shoddy and forgettable. So I'm going to give it a good bad. I think it's cool. I think the inside of the peach is, like, very imaginative and lit in a very cool way. But, um, 
you know, it's like one of those movies where I'm saying like, I really like the rind of a clay peach. Um, that's not really like the whole totality of the experience. Good, bad. Interesting. Yeah, I think I agree with you that it's a good, bad. Uh, on a technical level, you're right. It really does. I mean, it's a pioneer of its time of what, you know, you can do with clay and stop motion. And it's miraculous that some of these things are pulled off. I do think on a story level, though, where a children's movie does find its entertainment value, you're right that it's a little cart before the horse of we can do this, but like to what end? And you'd wonder like why they just didn't spend a little bit more time giving this a little bit more joy or giving it like a little bit more revenge like if he ultimately gets revenge against the horrible ants and then like does find that kind of like hanksian urban success or something uh are you talking about bonfire of the vanities again it's everything goes back to the bonfire (laughs) of the vanities uh this one i was thinking more like big um but yeah then this is a more satisfying movie but yeah i agree with you it's it's like really fucked up so two critical and modest commercial successes coming out of the gate for Henry Selleck. And then I feel like we get into blank check territory with Monkey Bone in 2001. Well, to be fair, it does sound like Monkey Bone spent a good deal of time in development hell where it began as the Kaja Blackley graphic novel Dark Town uh, an adapt- a straight adaptation of that that both the writer and Henry Selleck were like super pumped about and they like couldn't get that over the line. So they made it whatever this is. <laughs> they ad- they critic- critically, they added monkey bone. In a coma, a cartoonist finds himself trapped within his own underground creation and must find a way to get back while racing against his popular but treacherous character, Monkey Bone! <laughs> Show me the monkey! Check that monkey! Stu Miley is the creator. The man behind the monkey. Monkey Bone is his creation. I love your way. <laughs> Stu was about to have it all, until it all came crashing down. From the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Hello? Am I dead? (laughs) Hiya, boss. Comes the story of a man whose imagination (laughs) brought a monkey to life. This is living. Hey! Get your fat butt out of my face. And a monkey. We've got big plans for that body of yours! Who wanted a life of his own. From the poster, and the poster is literally Brendan Fraser, Monkey Bone, and Chris Kattan in like an all-red gymnast outfit. You assume that Chris Kattan is either the titular Monkey Bone or a huge part of this movie, right? Yes. 
I for I thought when they said monkey bone, it was like in James and the Giant Peach when they're in like the death world, he's the monkey, but when he's out of the death world, he's Chris Kitt's hand. Right. No. Whatever. It's not. That's not what it is. And by the way, seeing Brendan Fraser, Chris Kattan, and Monkey Bone on a poster is essentially the like the double Spider-Man meme on Twitter where they're oh you know it's the God. same Spider-Man. Like nothing is more misguided two thousand one than like Brendan Fraser slowly becoming Chris Kattan. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. But, but he's not becoming Chris Kattan. But but isn't it so weird that Monkey Bone has the sensibility of Chris Kattan? If anything, well, yeah, that doesn't. That's a clear missed opportunity because Chris Kattan is. I mean, he's done Mr. Peepers. Like he yeah. is something that be, could be called Monkey Bone. <laughs> and you're right, but I think you have it backwards because, like, when Chris Kattan does make his appearance, it's actually Chris Kattan acting more like Brendan Fraser because it's Brendan on the inside of him. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. One becomes the other. It almost begins in this like Kevin Smith, Beavis and Butthead kind of milieu where it's just line drawings of this monkey character who's a manifestation of this like scared preteen boy's erection. Right. And this weird story of him becoming aroused for the first time is like the quote unquote pilot episode that a bunch of like friends and executives are watching at this LA hotel. And then we're introduced to the Brendan Fraser character who, I mean, is basically one of the characters from chasing Amy or something right? uh, who's holding it together slightly less, uh, who has been picked up and he's got the TV show and they've ordered episodes and now like they want to do a, a Burger King tie-in and an action figure tie-in and they like want to merchandise the hell out of it. And Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall is like his unscrupulous manager slash agent. Uh, and then because of all the shit that he's stashed in his uh, vintage Porsche, he like loses control of his car when trying to back out of this parking lot and yes, goes into the, the aforementioned coma, which is sort of like he like gets there through like a similar mechanism as like the emperor's new groove when Yzma and Kronk are like going through the secret lab roller coaster. It's yeah. kind of like that or like mm. Indiana Jones too. Critically though, the thing that causes him to crash is inflatable monkey bone merch that I don't think he wanted. That's right. Frazier. What a, what a hole in my, in my understanding of this film. Well, I just want to set up that there are like a few things going on in monkey bone that I think are interesting. Um, and one of them is like the, the fact that Stu Miley is sort of like this Bill Watterson type. That's like, I created this thing, but like, but I hate this thing. Right. Um, which I don't think Bill Watterson hates, hates Calvin and Hobbes, but he certainly doesn't want, doesn't appreciate the Calvin peeing bumper stickers um oh my <laughs> and you know what nor do i um <laughs> this is where you're gonna take your stand here what are the rules of downtown noah do they cohere for you when you're alone and life is making you lonely <laughs> okay. chance you can always go downtown yeah yeah what i'm asking is are we in a simulation of Stu miley's mind or are we it's in a general depository for the nightmares of everyone who is stuck in 
eternal sleep? And why do those two things cross over in the way that they do? Yeah, it's simultaneously is like Monsters, Inc. uh, And then something closer to Stephen King where he's like locked in his own mind. Um, And of course, Stephen King is also there. Of course. Or an actor. You know, they almost got Stephen King for that. I read on IMDb trivia, but they didn't. But the Sox were playing the Orioles that day. The Sox? Yeah. And and so when they get to downtown, that's where the Henry Selleck's stop motion uh, really shines. Because it's this completely um, deranged, like, Beetlejuicean world of, like, people who are, like... Uh, seem like they're like losing their humanity into like these crazy like Teletubby costumes mixed with like big and small stop motion puppets mixed with like Rose McGowan being like a sexy cat. Um, yeah. And everything's either like too big or too small. And Giancarlo, es- the top half of Giancarlo Esposito is there as he's like sort of like the devil tumness Lord of nightmares, but he has no legs, just has the little, the little tumness little, yeah. hooves. The little feet, yeah. yeah. And there's something a little bit like the Tatooine uh, Cabana Band or whatever down there. Right. Definitely. The most Eisley Cantina is what my, the, my sorry, friend here is Sorry, the most Eisley Cantina. Jesus he was so Christ. close, he just got every word of it wrong. <laughs> Unlimited <laughs> power. But down here, Monkey Bone is doing like nightly raunchy sets He's the Lenny Bruce of downtown <laughs> doing doing mostly jokes about Stu Miley's earthbound girlfriend played by Bridget Fonda. He's like sort of in Casablanca waiting for his papers to come through. And this involves some like pretty dubious characters, uh, including Whoopi Goldberg, as mentioned in Thomas Hayden Church as the devil and his assistant, her assistant, respectively. Um, But I don't know. I mean, you were talking about how the animation stands out in this part, and I almost thought that, like, in this one, the animation is so convoluted, and it feels like this movie was edited down from, like, a much, much longer, but maybe not any more coherent version, uh, where, like, just visually, like shot to shot he'll be like you know fighting off a demon bodyguard person in like a chamber and then in the next shot he'll be like outside of that room like running down the street and you're like how did you how did you get from here to here so i mean i think if there is any good animation there you're really losing the art of it because it's you just don't know what you're watching half the time sure that's fair um the other thing we have to say and i wish i would have asked Damon about this is um, Rose McGowan, who plays this literal sex kitten, um, said a couple years ago that uh, this movie was taken away from Henry Selleck halfway through. Um, and it really smacks of that. Like, it really feels like a couple people who cared a lot. I, I don't know if the original vision was going to work. It certainly wasn't going to make money. Like, the I'm sure that Fox only knew how to market this as a kids movie. It's not really a kids movie at all. No, um, but it's almost like more like pre Seth Rogen, like sausage party animation. Yeah. Right. It's like very sexual in nature and like very potty mouthed. We just talk about Brendan Fraser. It's pretty fascinating. I went back and read the Ebert review that was like, 
this movie kind of like does him dirty like he doesn't want to be there and i think that that is wrong i think that no brendan he loves Frazier, singing brick house when brendan Fraser is possessed by the spirit of monkey bone and is doing this like you know hanging from the canopy bed ass shaking foreplay right possessed by his own monkey libido he is so so into the zany inappropriate slapstick of this like i think you're just talking about somebody's taste in comedy that's um impressively committed and just totally unappealing Right, yeah, he doesn't have like the charm of a Jim Carrey as much as he has the energy to parrot him in a moment like that. Yeah, he's just leading man Chris Kattan in those moments. He's just waiting for them to greenlight another goddamn mummy movie. Right, and, and literally, I believe he does bedazzled this and Dudley Do-Right between the two mummy movies, doesn't he? Bedazzled is an incredible film, and I hope that 2021 includes one more Brendan Fraser movie. Sounds good. We can do that. Um, but yeah, just like the stuff that he's willing to do in this movie. Like, I believe he kisses an orangutan on the mouth. I believe I His watched His middle that. part alone is worth <laughs> kudos. Just the bravery of it. Yeah. I think that one of the things that kind of cements for me that this is like not a kid's movie and it's probably not a good movie, but there's like something going on in here is the last image of this movie is dave foley who has taken this fucking this toy filled with like nightmare mustard gas shooting from the monkey's butt like right into his face (laughs) that kind of like i guess turns everyone who takes it into this like walking nightmare paralysis monkey bone and dave it's like the gas in batman begins exactly and naked dave foley yells first person pov into the camera people take off your clothes like this is in a weird way like if there's a text underneath this that i think is here it's that like this is about like the monstrousness of people's ids and how they're connected to like sex and money and are not to be restrained no matter how like handsome and principled of an artist you are like if you get trapped with yourself, like you may find that the absolute worst part of you wins out and tries to sleep with Bridget Fonda, which is totally ridiculous, but I think is like what this movie is interested in. Um, and yeah. id, people's ids, people's uncontrolled spazzing ids are like not fun to watch. And it's not, but it is something. What's disappointing about it is you can tell from the actual shots that people were trying when they filmed it. I think the trying stopped clearly in post-production when the thing was kind of put together. Uh, It was like the safest, most like goofy Nick movie you can think of. Uh, And it doesn't get there because like the it's. It's high-minded in way in the way that all of these movies are high-minded, that it's about a very adult subject matter. It's like if you just had impulse and you just had money and talent, like what would you do? Uh, and this is – and maybe there's also stuff in there about like how, you know, depressive spells for people can be like there was three months where I just like wasn't making anything creative and my life got out of control and I didn't know who I was when I woke up. 
And I think that read about mental illness is there too. I will say that Bob Odenkirk leading the team of doctors trying to track down Chris Kattan's organs is very funny. He yells at one point, he's chasing this dead gymnast leaking spleens and livers across the park. He yells, stop that dead man. We're doctors. (laughs) Uh, He's really good. There there are some good moments. And I think Chris Kattan and how he commits to the bit of the fact that his neck is literally broken and he like oh can't hold his head up straight yeah. is so funny. Um, there is like a funny kid's face off in here yeah. somewhere. Monkey Bone is an example of like really bad taste and like insane workmanship being pretty interesting. I'm going to give this a bad good. I think Monkey Bone may be waiting for its showgirls moment. Holy shit. Release the sell it cut. Yeah, exactly. You took the words Give right out of my mouth. Give us 345 of 4 by 3 Yeah, monkey bone. I don't want to see monkey bone if it's under two and a half hours, but over three. It's too big it a story. Give it to me. Yes. <laughs> I want them to release it like they'd release a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like... In a six-episode Netflix series. A roadshow. A monkey bone roadshow. Oh, my God. Bring back... Yes, bring back roadshow-style presentations, theatrical experiences. You can stop humoring me and give it your bad bad. This is easily, (laughs) easily one of the worst movies we've watched for the podcast. See, now that's not true. undeniably a bad bad it will leave a horrible taste in your mouth. And these guys may be geniuses as we've seen from the other films, but this is not an example of a well-made movie. 2009's Coraline, Noah. An adventurous 11-year-old girl finds another world that is a strangely idealized version of her frustrating home, but it has sinister secrets. Coraline Jones always dreamed of finding a better world. Ah! A world more exciting than this. But never did she imagine that she'd discover it in her own home. been waiting for you, Coraline. Where parents are always fun. I love your garden! Can't believe you did this! And everything is so good. What's shaking, baby? It just can't be real. Mom? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have... buttons Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. You probably think this world is a dream come true. This is an organ-made film. It's the first from oh, wow. uh, first from this, the Hillsborough-based studio Laika, which has gone on to make such movies as uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, Missing Link, Paranorman. Based on a book by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, published in 2002. Another sort of weirdo is he kids is he not yeah a visionary a visionary right a a rule doll of of his time totally totally 
So Coraline is a is a comeback and a big success. Um, and um, Selica, I think, is intimately involved with running Leica when it when it starts. Um, it's operated by uh, Travis Knight, who's the the son of Nike CEO Phil Knight. Um, oh, the shoe dog himself. Exactly. Um, and yeah, it ends up. Uh, making a bunch of money. I think it makes like 150 million, uh, critical acclaim. It lost to up at the Oscars this year for, for best animated. Um, not this year though. 2009. That year. That year. I would say, <laughs> look at you just roasting my demonstrative pronouns. <laughs> um, and it's also, you see uh, new technology afoot. And Damon talked about this earlier, but this is the first time they're able to do like digital replication on these faces, which uh, I think speeds them up a good bit and also allows them to just make everything like a lot more ornate. Would you say that the ornateness is ramped up in this one? I think the ornateness is ramped up and the just how much the camera moves through the world is very much on display here in the way that you will see in Pixar movies. So yeah, they've this family, the Joneses, uh, mom voiced by Terry Hatcher, dad voiced by John Hodgman, Coraline voiced by Dakota Fanning. Um, they've just moved out to the rainy Oregon coast, this moldy, musty Victorian uh, house called the, the pink palace apartments, sort of a split, split level situation. Um, and they're like garden catalog authors. And I, I really love like the place where it finds um, this family in terms of like the impact on Coraline. Cause I think it feels very real and very upsetting in this like much more banal way than James and the Giant Peach, which is like, you can imagine like moving cross country with your two ambitious parents and like it's supposed to be like this family quest and mission, but like they got to be on their laptop for two months. Like as soon as you get the boxes in the door and how like brutal and boring that is for a child who's just come from from Michigan. Um, She just wants to go out and stomp around in the mud um, and she's just confronted with these like pretty... I think pretty realistically detached parents. Chance, when you think about relocating to the Oregon coast yourself, do you think, huh, it's worse than Michigan? Uh, I think the auto industry on the Oregon coast is in better shape. Oh, yeah? Are they banging together some Fiats out there? No, 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 brother. It's 100% dune buggies. I love that. This this movie uh, lacks adequate dune buggies, but there's a good like uh, dirt bike in there. It's really interesting to see Selleck's style sort of come into this digital age where like the edges can be smoothed out a little bit. You yeah. know, my issues with you know some of the live action and even the claymation of the earlier movies that like sort of the background wasn't being considered in a way that like made visual sense to me this one kind of like makes what's that or couldn't be considered or couldn't be considered and this movie kind of almost like flips a middle finger at me personally because it like takes us to the edge of what is the considerable animated claymation space uh and it just kind of falls off the edge like the matrix or something Mm -hmm. uh, which is 
kind of funny or like the Truman show or something where like the world does have edges. Noah, just like focus on how beautiful this house that we've rendered in two different ways to show you like the, the above world and then the underneath world. Um, and I also think too, that this one is most successful in telling a very adult story but doing it in a way that is accessible to children. So you have kind of like that Babadookian, like, oh, there's this evil spirit. But then like it, it has the complication of more of a Jordan Peele where, I mean, this movie has a lot in common with us, for example, where there's like the people that are us on the top. And then there's like the people who got separated, the mirror people on the bottom, and they all have fucking button eyes. And, you know, there's a, a dead evil sister who's like kind of the go between between these worlds and setting the tone for the for the evil world. Um, so that's I mean similar to the monkey bone conceit. And I mean clearly that's a story that Selleck is interested in talking about these sort of two different but but sort of diametrically opposed universes that are playing out you know parallel. Um, but this one to me just makes so much more script sense and visual sense like you have a door in the wall that is what leads you to the space not fucking abraham lincoln's mouth for whatever reason like here is we're stuck in the space but the space is infinite and this little door does like so much work uh but i think that yeah maybe that's where we can dig in totally i mean that little door Going back to Nightmare, he is interested in the crossover of realms and what happens when you as a child um, feel so either combined or shrunken or smushed into like your own little world and what is there what is there when you can cross into metaphor is it a better but more dangerous version of what you have is it what he called in james and the giant peach the miracle world which i felt was like very carefully chosen words for like that little boy to escape right um is it worse parts of you as in monkey bone and the movie shadow king from what i can tell like dealt with these exact same things um so yeah coraline is a really uh cogent and coherent version of that that i think is kind of does do a really nice job of orienting itself in the physical i want to pick up on two things that you that you just talked about one is like there's a moment late in the movie um where you do realize that like this other world is a simulation of sorts um and you see these animators who in many cases have made their career in clay kind of show their creation like pulled apart and swept up in ones and zeros and, and binary. And like this, it almost like does feel like this, uh, they're visualizing a war, um, or at least the battlefield of like the physical versus the digital. And I, as I was watching this movie, I had the weird experience cause the show doubles as my Oregon coast travelogue of like looking out the window of uh, my Airbnb this weekend out on the coast. And like, there were these two kids that stayed next to us. And I kid you not for four hours like four days in a row they were just looking for frogs they were just like in this fountain looking for the fucking frogs and there this movie has a really nice like pace setter of john hodge and being like Coraline, i don't know go look around her dad Coraline, go look around the house and like count everything that's blue and make a list and you know as mediated as our world becomes when we're little everything is still as tactile and physical as it was 500 years ago. Um, But that's like the battle 
that is fought as we age, as we become Coraline's age. And I think this movie engages with that in such a smart way. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, yeah. And it's dealing with something that, you know, the Disney of it all is also interested in too, which is like kids getting to what Angela Lansbury calls in bed knobs and broomsticks, the age of not believing. Right. Uh, And I think that's precisely where Coraline is in this this house lets her well of course i also like a haunted house story but this house lets her explore come of age and you know fight back against this thing use her skills in order to outdo this this evil force Mm -hmm. for the first half the other world with the other mother and the other father who everything's better the color palette is better the music is better. Like it's a pretty cool score from uh, Bruno Coulier with like electro jazz stuff and tones. Um, and like everyone's happier and it's all oranges and browns and reds instead of like muck green and gray. Um, I like how long the movie goes being like, this is better. Like the real world, there's no part of the movie where the real world kind of like makes a case for itself, you know? (laughs) Right. And it's so interesting too that the animation, the theory sort of around it is hooked on this idea that what makes these characters real are their eyes. And I think that's so true like with where animation is now, like much like hands, eyes are the kind of tell for oh, this looks stupid, or like, this doesn't look like Michael Douglas, like you aged him down. You know, this doesn't look like Jeff Bridges, you know, whatever it happens to be. And it's really in the eyes. Uh, And I think this movie kind of plays around with that thing that like is real and is warm and inviting and like the food looks great and like the house is charming and warm, but like they have button eyes. Like you can't get away from how creepy it is with these button eyes and you can't relate to the characters too because like even though the dad in the real world has these sort of like sort of uh jaundiced yellow eyes like he he feels real and he feels like an actual character and the mom too with kind of like the way she processes things like that she has eyes like these windows into her soul uh happen to be you know more sympathetic than you know whoever made dinner right yeah, I think unfortunately thing that stops the movie from going from good to great, not to spoil Caroline, is that there's actually not that much of a choice there. It becomes like very clear at some point that like, well, isn't this place great? Um, all you got to do to stay is poke your own eyes out and be eaten. And I was kind of just hoping that Caroline would be confronted with a more like adult decision there. You know what do I mean? Do you see, keep saying Caroline? As a joke, of course. No, I was fucking up. It's Coraline. Um, the title of the film is Coraline. But people in the movie, including me, are always mistakenly calling her Caroline. That's where the Neil Gaiman himself... God, what a job of covering my ass I'm doing. Gaiman himself mistyped Caroline as Coraline, and that's where the name of this came from. So I'm merely paying homage now. I'm certainly not screwing up. Over I love it when you pay homage douse my mistakes in homage yes 
But I, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I think where the, the movie is sort of adult and does make that choice is by saying that even like just picking reality is always better than picking like the weird fantasy that has limitations at the edges. Um, sure. That but makes where sense. I think the movie could be a better children's film and thus appealing to your sensibilities perhaps a bit more is by having more likable... <laughs> more likable parents where there's like little things about them that are like more positive that Coraline could perhaps notice. Yeah. Right. Well, this is the, this is the, um, this is the James and the giant peach of it all where like, it's kind of brave. The movie never goes out of its way to be like, but you love mom, don't you? When mom like gives her the mittens that she wanted at the end, like it's a wink, but like it's pretty cold. Like mom never sits down and talks to her and is like, honey, I know that we've been busy lately. And like, yes, it never happens. Movie, it, it intentionally like doesn't have, they just like, oh, we pulled off the work thing that we needed to pull off. And now we have money again. Like here are the fucking mittens you wanted. Right. <laughs> but I don't want you to bother me tomorrow. But and I'm I still, not yeah. going to go play in the mud with you. In fact, wait, isn't there, I have a quote written down from the ghost boy when she escapes he says to her, it ain't all bad, miss. Thou art still alive. Like, that's right. the consolation. Maybe maybe that's the, the coming of age thing that I actually need to confront. Is that like, hey, she made it. You're she an adult it. now. These other kids, their souls may be out of purgatory, but they're still dead. Right. They're not, they're not back to life. Um, yeah, these, these no, movies are is... not, uh, not big on coddling. Not big on giving you hugs at the end. You know, and neither am I. So, I think the vocal performances are great. Um, I think Keith David is probably the standout as the cat. Um, yes, and it's not like your average like uh, Maid Marian Keith David, which is terrifying. This one's like a little bit more playful. Yeah, he's purring. Or Cheshire Cat. Yes. Right. The Hodgman performance is really funny too, of like him being like the good version of him is like this cool like jazz dad, but like that's pretty suspicious. <laughs> There's nothing better than a suspicious jazz dad for sure. Uh, but I think Terry Hatcher is also good, especially like on the more like weird what's mom what's other mom trying to pull over my eyes kind of thing here. Yeah. There's something seductive about like. Isn't the chicken perfectly moist, Coraline? Terry turns the dial more to Desperate Housewives for other mom. Yeah, we like that about Terry. I would dare to say that this movie is a good good. I would too. I really agree. Um, Wow. It might feel a little rushed at the end, like the quest for the three souls. Um, It's not a great quest. It's sort of just like a foregone bouncing around to the three apartments. Whoa. What? You always got to find the souls of the people who are soulless. I'm not suggesting she shouldn't have found them. I'm suggesting that perhaps there could have been a little more process to it. A little bit more. Organs spilling out of them like Chris Kattan running down the uh, the mall in front of that country club or whatever. So yeah, there are a couple things to quibble with, but like uh, a technical marvel. And I really felt for uh, the Coraline character, which is always an important litmus test in these stop motion animation films. Um, and just like, much like Nightmare, the the work that goes into successfully uh, 
like imagining and parallel imagining two different worlds, whether it be Halloween and Christmas or the Oregon world and the other world. Like that's a really compelling way to, to show and realize your work. So yeah, good, good. Yeah. I think that the fact that this movie is able to be both a compelling family film and frankly, a pretty frightening horror film in equal measure. And I think it's because it doesn't overplay its hand early about what the twist is of this crazy world. Um, it, yeah, it puts it in conversation with the Jordan Peele of things uh, as a genre redefiner. You've segued well into our, our little outro here, which is uh, the, cur- the film currently in production from Henry Selleck, Wendell and Wild. Two demon brothers face off against a nun and a pair of goth teens. The two demons, Wendell and Wild, voiced by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, and uh, the script is from all of them. Holy fucking shit. Doesn't that sound fun? This was a pleasure, buddy. This was uh, I enjoyed uh, taking this stroll down memory and new memory lane with you. Yeah, I love when we tee up three movies that do want to be watched and enjoyed. Happy monkey bone to you, sir. <laughs> yes, and when you think of me, think of monkey bone. Yet year after year, it's the same routine. And I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old thing.